makes you such a threat? We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power, power. Greetings and good day and welcome, my relatives. I shake your hands with good feelings in my heart, and the whole world is a beautiful day. And let us hear your voice respectfully celebrate life. And this is First Voices Radio, and I send you greetings and strength from the east, east gate of Turtle Island, where the sun and the water touch the earth at once. And I'm your host, Teokasen Ghost Horse. This is an all-native hosted, all-native produced First Voices Radio now in its 29th year broadcasting, and Liz Hill is his First Voice Radio's producer. And you can hear us now on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Spotify, as well as firstvoicesindigenousradio.org for archiving. And you can hear us internationally on Savizar Contemporary in Berlin and Potsdam, Germany. Our first guest, uh, an honored guest, Leona Morgan, who is Dene is an indigenous activist and a community organizer who's been fighting nuclear colonialism since 2007. And she's focusing on preventing new uranium mining, nuclear waste dumping, and the transport of uh, radioactive materials in the southwestern United States. She also co-founded and works with Hall No, which is uh, on Facebook.com, H-A-U-L-N-O, Hall No, Radiation Monitoring Project, which is radmonitoring.org and Nuclear Issues Study Group, which is also on Facebook.com, Nuclear Issues Study Group. And you can look these, these uh, sites up and find out more in- information about what we talk about today. And Leo, Leona also contributes to the International Initiative Don't Nuke the Climate, which addresses nuclear energy as a global climate threat. And she's not from the Navajo Nation and lives in Albuquerque, New Mexico, We'd like to welcome you back to First Voices again, 
uh, Leona. It's always an honor to speak with you. Thank you. Hi, good morning or good afternoon. How are you? Yes, it is. It is uh, good morning and good afternoon at the same time. We're good. Thank <laughs> you. You know, I, I wanted to bring to attention once more, because in the news lately in a worldwide scale was this idea of there was uh, an accident again, or actually an earthquake that happened in Fukushima, and yet no news. You know, no one wants to pay attention to it. We're paying more attention to the political climate and who got the vote and who's winning and who's wrong. But yet the wrongs that humans are doing to nature and what we think of nature seems to be, you know, a a far-fetched idea that we can do no harm to the earth. And yet uh, in in your part of of Turtle Island in the United States, uh, for most, uh, you know, people are worried about COVID, which is which is what we should be worried about, but also the the long-term inter- enterprising, the pandemic sort of saying is, is that a long-planned nuclear waste storage facility in the southwestern New Mexico desert was actually rushed through approval process during this pandemic. And according to this New Mexico congressional delegation, environmentalists and other opponents, that this these... Uh, they, you haven't had time to even vo- voice your disapproval at the NRC, which is a nuclear regulatory commission around the state when, when they actually planned hearings, but you didn't have a chance to do that. Could you tell us more about what's going on with with uh, uh, this uh, nuclear <laughs> nuclear waste site that they're planning, unbeknownst to a lot of people here? Yes. Um, yeah, that's quite a lot you brought up. And, and if I could back up a little bit... Um, I just want to first introduce myself uh, properly. Um, I, I am here uh, talking with you from, from the Navajo Nation. Um, like you said, I'm based in Albuquerque, and New Mexico as a whole has been inundated by the nuclear industry since the beginning of starting to build the atomic bomb, which, which was largely completed in New Mexico. Um, a lot of folks don't know, it actually started from mining in the current Democratic Republic of the Congo, where our relatives over there, they, they mined this really powerful uranium by their, with, with, with their hands. And their, um, their, their stories are just, simil- just like ours, similar stories of poor worker um, conditions, no information about the health impacts or the environmental dangers, and of course the long-lived his, the long-lived um, the, the 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 problems with radioactive exposure and waste um, that continues today. And so, I just wanted to start with that and acknowledge them, um, the folks over there who are still dealing with that, because uranium mining is the source of all of this, from weapons to nuclear energy. And uranium mining happens mostly on indigenous lands worldwide. And so um, uranium is used, like I said, um, for both energy and weapons, but people really separate them. And people don't understand that some of the components of weapons actually comes as a byproduct of nuclear energy development. So the two really go hand in hand. And, and people of color, indigenous peoples, are often at the forefront of those exposures. And, and right now, like you said, um, we're, we're now facing in New Mexico the world's a proposal for the world's largest radioactive waste dump um, in the southeast corner close to Texas. 
And the article focuses on one company called Holtec. Um, Holtec has many faces, and, and, it, and it has many other partner com- companies um, worldwide. And it is, you could, I tell people, you could just Google Holtec and corruption, and you will find a plethora of, of examples of all the wrongs they've done all over the world. They're actually based in New Jersey. Um, and I'm going to come back to some of the, the, the impacts you all um, are dealing with over there in the East Coast, specifically with Indian Point, north of New York City. But um, the waste dump here that's being proposed is for waste from every commercial plant. And, and we don't have any in New Mexico. Um, a lot of the mining occurred in the western states, but uranium is mined and exported and transported all over the world. And so people don't really think about the transport issue so um, really, with this particular waste dump, um, the NRC, the regulating agency, Nuclear Regulatory Commission, is the federal agency that licenses this facility. And so right now, we say these dumps, they, they, they're called consolidated interim storage. We say CIS for short because this idea the federal government is, is, is proposing is that these dumps are going to be temporary. So interim, meaning they're going to only be there for a short time, which could be more than 100 years, because the United States has no permanent place to put the waste. So they created this problem um, when they started developing, well, not just nuclear energy, but going back to uranium mining, all of these um, facilities have no permanent solution because there is no permanent way to deal with radioactive waste that will be, you know, it'll exist longer than the next seven generations, the next 7,000 generations. So right now they're saying, oh, it's just temporary until we figure out a permanent place to put it. Um, Yet there's two proposals that they're entertaining, and they're only 40 miles apart. Um, One is in southeast New Mexico. The other is just along the state line with Texas. And both proposals have gone through the you know, the, the scoping period, the draft environmental impact statement period. And so we're expecting the final EIS this, this year, which means the federal government is basically licensing a storage facility that all of us who are opponents are saying is illegal. And when I say opponents, I don't mean, you know, just indigenous people in New Mexico. Um, yet all of the, 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 the indigenous nations in New Mexico have expressed, you know, opposition this opposition includes the governors of New Mexico and Texas, um, like you said, our, congr- our congressional delegation, as well as community people across the country. This is a national issue, and I'm really glad that you're focusing on it today because, like you said, a lot of people don't know about it. And right now, we're thinking the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, even though it's illegal, this, this facility under federal policy, they're still going to push it and license it because they have a growing waste problem as all of the nuclear power plants are beginning to shut down. But that doesn't mean we need to rush any type of facility. Um, What we're advocating for is safest storage at the site of origin or as close as possible. So um, these are some of the the ideas that folks have come up with. Um, We use this acronym called HOSS, H-O-S-S, Hardened On-Site Storage. So this would be to keep the waste at the power plant as safe as possible um, 
because, you know, not just a danger to the environment or health, but these, the, the waste can also be targeted um, by acts of malice, so to terrorism, basically. And so we want the, the entire country to know that this is, these facilities are dangerous, but we need to all do our job and talk to our elected officials and educate them that we need to keep the waste where it is until there is a more permanent, more viable and economic solution. And not to just dump it, you know, on a majority people of color state. Um, we're, we're already dealing with like over, you know, for we're in New Mexico and the Southwest, we have hundreds of abandoned uranium mines. In New Mexico, we have two nuclear weapons labs. And, and then we have this other waste dump called the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant that had a fire on Valentine's Day in 2014. I mean, we have more than our share of radioactive waste, and we, we really need to deal with the issue instead of just trucking it over here. The, actually, the, the transport would be mostly by rail. So I say anyone between a nuclear power plant and southeast New Mexico, anyone within, you know, near a railroad, is at risk of exposure or accidents. And of course, accidents would cost a lot of money. And this company, Holtec, they, they have a very bad track record. And so this, this is just one issue um, that we're dealing with, with this company, Holtec. Um, there's some other issues, you know, they're trying to decommission power plants. And that's another thing I wanted to bring up is um, what's going on in your state. Um, they're, they're actually trying to buy Indian Point to decommission. And um, because of their track record, um, the communities there, there's lots of organizations fighting this. And the NRC, the same agency that's, you know, allowing this illegal facility to move forward, they didn't even hold a public uh, hearing about Holtec buying Indian Point up there in New York City. So um, the pub, the, there's going to be a hearing on um, February 22nd that your listeners, whoever's um, concerned up there can get involved in, and this would be um, held by the New York State Public Service Commission. Um, and what we're saying is, you know, do not allow the license transfer of Indian Point to the, inter- to, to the, um, the, the company name is the Comprehensive Decommissioning International LLC, which is basically Holtec. And so down here, we're fighting Holtec. People in California on the coast are fighting Holtec. There's a lot of issues at San Onofre Power Plant. And um, yeah, it's a horrible company, and they should—they have no business doing any of this. Leona Morgan, I, I'm really think going back in history about how long this has been happening, not just to people of color, people of culture. You know, we could talk from about Yucca Mountain, but you know, when when the atom bomb exploded in, in Shoshone Land, where that waste went to, it stayed in place, maybe, or and then they talked about the spent fuel that would be transported by train, which most people, urban people, do not see these trains because they're in the remote parts of the country. And then again, I talk about, you talked about the education, and there are like these buzzwords like destination. I think Holtec used, used that word. Um, and and when, when we are looking at how do we educate the people about what is going on here? Destination reminds me of Manifest Destiny, right? And in, in what goes on with, we are, we are being denounced before we even can protest or even, you know, make a statement. And we're always waiting on the EIS. And that has to go through the offices and even 
to the Secretary of the Interior nominee, Deb Holland, is, is she hearing about this, you think, and I'm pretty sure she is, but more people in that area, such as your the Governor Michelle uh, Grisham, how is she doing with this uh, this proposed site? Um, yes, well, um, you're exactly right. You know, all of it's it's all connected, and some of our uh, officials have ver- been very vocal about the about about not only Holtec but all of the all of the nuclear fuel chain um, problems that we have in our state. Um, we, our organization, I work with a few organizations. Um, one of them, the Nuclear Issue Study Group, um, we're really focused on Holtec. And, and actually, we were the first group to meet with um, Congresswoman Holland when she came back to New Mexico. And um, as, as a Secretary of the Interior, um, we're hoping she will, you know, use her position to, to address not only the, the whole tech issue it's not really in her in her purview um in in this situation but she does have a a say in other things that happen on public lands especially uranium mining um our governor also has come out very strongly against whole tech um some of the issues with whole tech are that they're um saying new mexico consents to this and that new mexico wants it but um like you said buzzwords you know our buzzwords are national sacrifice zones and all of this is a, a form not only of environmental racism, but this is also another example of nuclear colonialism. So like you mentioned, Manifest Destiny, some of the tools of colonization are, were mining, the railroad, and, and it continues today. People think genocide and relocation are part of history, but they're happening right now, especially when places become contaminated um, and, and our water is contaminated, you know, the Navajo Nation was hit really hard with COVID. And a lot of that has to do with the resource extraction um, from the coal mining and then, of course, the contamination um, from uranium. So when those industries come in, especially, you know, in the desert, they take our water, they, they use the water so that depletes our water resources, but then they also contaminate it. So when, when people hear these stories, you know, it's not just a, we're not just, you know, crying and complaining. Um, I think a good educational tool would be to talk about cancer um, and, and, and the genetic impacts that all people, no matter where they live, if they're, if, no matter who they are, no matter, no matter what race or ethnicity, but if you live near a nuclear facility, you know, we are all at risk to exposures. And I know my family has had different cancers, um, thyroid problems, pulmonary fibrosis. All of these, I know, are from uranium mining and exposure, as well as the fallout that came from those 900-plus nuclear tests at the Nevada test site. So, so when you talk about Western Shoshone, you know, they are the most bombed nation on the planet. And all of that fallout went across the country. So we're all at risk. And I think the important thing for people to know is that these things can be stopped. And, and that's the most important thing is we have so much of it circulating the atmosphere that the best thing to do right now is just, just to stop it. Stop using nuclear energy. Stop making nuclear weapons. Um, earlier at the top of the show, you mentioned Fukushima. We're coming on to the 10-year anniversary on March 11th, and and you know Japan just recently was, um, they had a public comment period last year about 
dumping the, the wastewater that's been in storage for 10 years, you know, dumping it into the ocean. So, so then it's going to be um, literally, you know, all over the world. Um, and in order to prevent these things, you know, it takes a lot of help um, from everybody to talk to their elected officials. Uh, right now, um, we're not just dealing with this proposal of the waste storage, which is not a solution, like I said, but um, on Navajo Nation specifically, we have several hundred mines that, that are, you know, they're, they're going through a so-called cleanup. And um, these are issues that people, you know, we, we try to address them in the best ways possible. But when we have, you know, little bits of money, like there was a, a recent article that came out about a $220 million going to Navajo Nation uranium cleanup, that's nothing. I mean, we need billions of dollars. And what the federal government does is, is they try to get this money from the companies that supposedly, you know, created the mess. The bottom line is the federal government created the mess. The federal government is responsible for all of these abandoned uranium mines because they use that uranium, you know, for the, the weapons that they continue to use for imperialism and colonialism all over the world. And they also created this issue of no place to put the high-level radioactive waste from the nuclear power plants. And so they also need to be responsible and, and foot the bill for dealing with not only the cleanup of the uranium mines, but all of the things that are needed to address the problems the people have. So, for example, RICA, the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act, is set to sunset next year, meaning there will be no more compensation for people affected by some of the uranium mining and weapons testing that occurred. Um, that issue is so big, it could take a whole, you know, show on its own. But, um, yeah, the, the federal government needs to continue to fund RICA. Um, and all of the methods they've chosen, they, they're, not, they're not working. And so something needs to happen. I don't know what's the best solution, you know, personally, but I've seen other people come up with different examples of how to change RICA so that it actually will help the most impacted people, such as the downwinders from the Trinity test. The first nuclear test was also in New Mexico, and those people are not even included in RICA. And so we really need to look at a comprehensive way to address the entire nuclear fuel chain from what we call, you know, from cradle to grave. That's right. Thank you. Thank you, Leona Morgan. This is, this is so much information there. It, it sounds overwhelming, but the solution is simple, that there is no permanent solution. And you think about that being laying around for a million years, and as you said, seven, seven generations plus, and it's not even, who's going to live that long, you know? And so I think we were not thinking about the future. We're just kind of getting what we can while we can. And a mentor of ours, John Trudell, says if you can't take... If you can't take it with you then, why take it now? You know, and I think that's part of the wisdom that we come from the elders of this land and the young folks that you are that that is continuing to do to take care of the earth. So thank you for being here, Leona Morgan. I like to, you know, it's an honor to always have you speak to this issue that you don't hear much about. So, but good luck to, to more of this. And I'll be there to try to help you. First Voices Radio will try to bring more of this out because this is what we really need to look at beyond all the other things happening. Mama Earth has to adjust to what we've done to her. But I'd like to thank you, Leona Morgan, for being here today. Oh, yeah. 
And that's Leona Morgan, who is uh, today an Indigenous activist and community organizer who has been fighting nuclear colonialism since 2007 and is also focused in on preventing new uranium mining, nuclear waste dumping and transport of radioactive materials in the Southwest. And you can find her on Facebook.com at Hall, no, H-A-U-L-N-O. And from there, it'll link you up to all other radiation monitoring projects and more information about the nuclear issues and study group. So thank you, Leona Morgan, once once again. And this is First Voices Radio, and uh, we'll be right back as usual. And uh, getting our next guest on the line takes a little time. So this is what we'll be doing. And again, thank you for joining us all these years, all these years. And let's begin again.
And that is a single by Nick Mulvey. Begin Again is a single, not on an album yet. And I think maybe we, we will be talking to the writers and singers of that Nick Mulvey and uh, our guest that we had a few weeks ago. And I can't remember his name, but I'll, I'll get to that. Um, our next guest... Our next guest is uh, Andy Beck, who grew up in the town of Perth in Scotland. I had a chance to talk with him, and I, we talked a little bit about the near-term human extinction that so many people, you know, kind of think that this is it, and and uh, we're not dealing with hope anymore, but we have to do deal with reality. So it's, it's more of an optimistic way to look at life and what are the solutions. Uh, evidently, that's not the way we've been you know, tooling along with this idea of capitalism, individualism, and selfishness against the earth, as our last guest has, you know, really noted that a lot of this, these ideas to destroy earth are coming from a lack of, lack of experience with nature. And so this next guest, Andy Beck, who is also a, a musician, and actually went to Edinburgh University and spent the early part of his career working as a software tester and as, as a technical writer, and also he enjoys it, plays guitar, as I said, a musician. He's, he's situated in a town within a distance of great outdoors and has given him an interest in has given him an interest in ecology and the natural world. He's currently writing a fiction and has been recently finished a novel called Aran and its attempt to make sense of the age we live in. And so this is what this is about, to make sense of the age we are living in. And he is from Scotland and what we're gonna be doing is listening to this interview. We'll go forward with that, and I'll be back at the end of the program here, and stay tuned. This is Andrew Beck. So what I wanted to talk about is your post and understanding what was going on with the near-term human extinction support group. I really wondered, because this inhumanism, as you call it, and how the West, and I call the West Occidental, because that means Europe and America, seem to share this death culture, as I would call it. I know that's a rash word for many people, listeners to hear. What we're doing is not really understanding these times because we're always looking for that next reset button, at least in the Western world, the Occidental world, because it's always been in control, uh, I would say, as a non-Westerner of the West and thinking that they will always be that way. But things are changing. And I would like to say, Andrew, that it is the earth that's changing and we have like have no choice but to change or adapt to what earth is is turning to so what are your thoughts there andrew beck yeah that's a that's a big uh, opening thought through having been part of this uh, as you say the near-term human extinction groups uh, the support groups having been as what's known as a doer it's the doer view which is kind of like the fight club i guess of ecology and, and climate change change, you know, you never talk about it. Um, but I mean, there's a big, it's a big question of, of, as to, you know, we have a beginning and we have an end in West, in what you call, you know, the Occidental part of Western culture. It's it's like we have a very discreet beginning for the earth. We have a discreet beginning for, I guess, Christian Western society. It's, you know, um, and this means that, you know, we, we expect there to be an ending as well. I mean, it's kind of logical when you think about it, it's like we're going to have an ending because we have a beginning and, you know, there's a middle as well. So at some point, uh, people come into the, the near-term human extinction group. And the biggest question people ask, Stevenson, is how long do we have? You know, it's like, how long do, you, do we have? 
So and I, I've come to hear that question now, but initially it's a big interest. But I don't ask you. I, I just I think it's not really about how long we have. It's like we should we should focus on something else. Really, we should focus on life. And as, as I think you said before, uh, the climate, it's just that it's a natural reaction. You know, what the climate is doing is just what the climate does. It's a reaction to what we've done uh, to this planet. And we haven't really taken care of ourselves or the planet. So it's like, a, I guess it's what you call a fever. You know, it's, it's the earth's in a fever because of what we've done to it. So, And to me, that's always been the focus. Is like, if you're into ecology... And I would call it ecology. You know, climate change is like the reaction, or it's just one of the many reactions. But if you're into ecology, you look at the whole picture, as you say, you look at the earth, and we're a part of the earth. So if the earth is slightly sick, then we get sick. If the earth gets better, we get better. And so our focus should be on, on healing the earth, or, or on healing ourselves, perhaps, if we're the, the um, part that's out of, you know, out of sync or out of whack. And so that's really... I guess that's my starting and my ending point is like, what are we going to do about our, our own bad health, you know, and our unhealthy habits, which we've um, externalized. It was an internal problem. And we've externalized our problems to the point that the earth now is sick because, because of us. I don't know what you think of that. Does that make sense? I do. That's a great jumble of ideas. That's what we're looking at because it gives us a, the idea that we have so much to look uh, so many possibilities to not just accomplish or do or find a solution, but to work with. I don't think we really learned how to work with. And when I yeah. refer to work with, I think it's more or less learning to work with, live with Mother Earth rather than dominating or the old word will be plunking. In other words, forcing a way to make the Earth adjust to us in the evidence is that that's not true. It doesn't work anymore, or it never has in the first place. It never, it never has, exactly. And so, yeah, I agree with you completely, but this is obviously, it's, it's an idea in the, again, the West, I'm just going to use that term, the West, in the sense in which we, I think we all understand it, but not the specific sense in which you mean it. Um, but those of us in the modern culture of the West, and I guess a lot of other parts of the world too, really, now that are modern, we, we, we do have that domineering, Thing and we look at everything that's happening as a problem and I think we see everything as outside of ourselves generally, you know, it's like everything's external, it's like climate change is something out there. You can even hear it with, I mean, even Bill McKibben sometimes talks this way, uh, it always annoys me a bit, it's like can we stop talking like we're waging war on, on stuff that's happening out there because it's not, it's really a symptom and you know, we're, we're, we're the problem or we're or at least something about us is, a, is is problematic in the way that we relate to the earth, or, or we just don't relate to the earth. And mm-hmm. so there was something. So that there was that awareness. Now there was something. Steve, Stephen Jenkinson is a is a guy who's been. Um, he's a Canadian guy. So he's he's uh, he used to work in what he calls the death trade, and um, he began to realise. Well, I, I used to call it death phobia, but he actually uses a different term. He calls it. Um, he says we've got a lack of, uh, not etiquette is one way of putting it, but um, we're not very articulate about the whole issue of death. And so we tend to fear it. It's not part of our culture anymore. We've, we've, we've lost the ability to relate to death. And, and this may be why people are so scared to talk about doom and death in general, 
or even raise the subject of extinction because you know it's, we're actually living in the sixth mass extinction according to to, to many scientists Paul Ehrlich has, has called it and uh, I know a few other um, biologists and uh, people have called this too so we're living in this this event known as the sixth mass extinction climate change is kind of you know one of many aspects of the, of the problem we have today and uh, and so you end up with people that have got a very splintered view as well with we live in a specialist age. We have people that just focus on um, atmospheric physics, oceanic physics. You know, we've got all these biological sciences, physics, chemistry. They're all split off, and people just take a little bit. You know, they take a little bit of um, the ecology, and they say, "Well, let's look at this bit." Somebody else takes the climate. Somebody takes the oceans. You know, we've got all these splits, and uh, you can actually see the problem that's caused. Like many people now in science itself are actually saying, well, we need to bring all these bits together because we can't, you know, many of us don't understand what everybody else is doing. And so one of the, actually one of the things I was doing myself for years, yeah, because I'm probably just for some reason I'm a bit more holistic in the way I think, was I was going between all the silos because, you know, I'm a bit of a geek. Anyway, I'm, I'm kind of, I get interested in things and I just geek out in them. So I was going through ecology and I was looking at climate science and I was looking at uh, economy and new people that were looking at the economics, looking at resource depletion, things like that. So there were all these wee silos and, you know, there were all these groups dedicated to looking at these problems. You know what? Nobody in here knows about climate. You know, all these people that are looking at peak oil, for example, they don't know about resource depletion. Well, actually, that's not true. They do. Uh, but they didn't know about climate. So I was thinking, right, I'm going to take the climate stuff in here. And then I was looking at the climate groups thinking, well, they don't know about peak oil. And a lot of them seem to be a bit so behind them on resource, you know, they think, oh, we can just swap our resources. We'll just, we don't have oil and gas. We'll just go and build out, you know, green, we'll build, we'll build out, like, you know, EVs and we'll build solar panels and wind farms. And, and it's like, yeah, but what about all the resources? You know, what about the effects? All these, all these ecosystems are going to be impacted by this. Can you not see that, you know? And a lot of people just don't see it. They just go, oh, it'll be fine. I thought, no, this is not this is not good. So so I was going between all these silos, going, hey, do you know about climate change? Do you know about peak oil? And and uh, you know that, that took me about two three years before I realised that uh, people are kind of stuck. You know, these silos are, are kind of people just they've got a set they build a narrative off their their worldview and they don't really like adjusting the narrative. So at that point, I realised, okay. This is not, I mean, I don't know, maybe it did work. I think, you know, if you drop comments, you'll maybe get a couple of likes, two or three likes from people, you know. So in any one group, you can't, you can't say it's, it's making no difference. Sometimes it does. Um, but after a while, I thought, this is not making enough of an impact. So, so for me, it took me back to writing. Uh, I'm an artist to, to begin with, so I was a yeah, musician. And I started out writing years ago. I thought, this mm -hmm. is going to be a book. For me, this is this is what I do. So, so yeah. So I, I took a lot of things back to the writing aspect, and I thought, well, this is one place I could build a story. I actually had a story going on, so I took my story and I thought, I'm going to. And funnily enough, it always was a bit of a. I had a bit of a Doomer-esque quality to it. I've just always had that awareness. So I was writing something, and it wasn't really going in that direction. But then I took it in that direction because I thought, this is this is the story that needs to be told. Uh, is the story of the sixth mass extinction. So I began to, I'm telling this this story, and I, uh, in the end, it took me 
several years to, to get it finished, but it's, it's done now and I've, I've sent copies out to people. I shall try and get it published, but I'm not sure who's going to take it because it's it goes to the wire a little bit. I think it goes a bit further than most people outside of the doer community would, would probably like to. But, you know, it's, it's that kind of big, terrible warning kind of novel, so, and, and it's an ecological right. novel in some ways. So that, that in the end, that's my contribution, really, I think, to the, the whole debate. Let's talk about something you said, really, the ideas and what what is... Uh laid out sometimes obviously and sometimes not so obvious is the apathy that shows up and you as you said in different silos and we've learned to objectify if we offer this solution it's uh going to be that oasis thought process that is going to save all of the humans but i, I think what i'm trying to get at again is uh, andrew beck is the the fact that we are thinking too much about humans only this sort of this anthropocentric viewpoint I think part of that is the language that we use. And I know you are in Scotland and uh, it's more of the colder climates in that area. And when I look at how the, the geographical north uh, is moving towards Scotland, basically, there is no North Pole anymore. True, it's moving. And I think what we're saying is our language uh, is a step or two behind what Earth has already changed. And I, I was interviewing somebody else, and I, I asked about if we were in rhythm. It seems like we're always just reacting because we're not in rhythm with the Earth. We we want to predict the weather, yet the weather is always changing, so to speak. So it's not really proving our science is true. Um, we can't trust science and as far as people who aren't from the West or the Western world in that way of thinking, don't really trust the weather reporting that's scientific. They couldn't even predict when the earthquake of Fukushima is going to happen. So again, as you mentioned earlier, we're not really talking. We don't, death is not part of our, our vocabulary. It's something to be avoided. And even talking in a, in a sense that the human race is, is possibly going to be extinct is another it's another story altogether, but when when I'm talking to people who are on the ground in different parts of the the world, such as you are in Scotland, what is the general feeling of people in in the mainstream Scot among the Scots? Their their mainstream thought process is not so much near term human extinction thoughts. It's more of the mainstream, like here in America, in the United States. Is that correct? Yeah. Um... I mean, we're, there's, there's definitely awareness, I would say, is, is I mean, the thing about language that you said, um, I, I kind of wish we spoke Gaelic, or, or was probably better known as Gaelic, but we pronounce it Gaelic here, because a lot of that language is still, it was, it doesn't really have a lot of terms for domination either. I was looking at it recently, actually, after listening to one of your your podcasts or your radio show, and you were talking about Sarah Lakota. I went back and had a look and thought, you know, there's it's a similar thing in Gaelic. It's, it's not really a possessive pronoun. Well, you can sort of do it, but it's you don't really, you kind of say somebody is with me rather than saying this is mine or this is my country or my brother. You say it, it, he, she is with me. So, I mean, that's a great start. And I think, you know, some of the languages, plus we had a lot of cultural things. Keating was done at, at funerals and we had big wakes. Actually, we still have wakes. And, but death was very much a part of life, you know, it was, it was integrated. So there's a lot of cultural 
things still they're still there and some of them I think can be revived to some degree that they would help us in the culture right now to be honest like a lot of, a lot of focus is on is on Brexit yeah <laughs> Brexit is taking a lot of attention away so that and to some degree independence has become a subject here and it's actually happening in Wales too and even Ireland now is looking at reunification because of and just because of the Brexit Brexit has been so there's all these sort of layers of politics are sitting on top of things but in terms of the actual the the, the ecology and the, the collapsing sort of ecology would say is is the awareness is there it's creeping in and I, I feel like it's always there it's, it's always sort of like it's a backdrop or it's a you know it's a subtext everything if you like I'm not sure if it's a it's sort of up front but you can tell like I mean just the last week we've had like polar we've had a sort of polar vortex kind of uh, shift and we've got really really cold weather as I think you have two in the states and uh, but today is, is suddenly warmed up I mean it's literally like 20 degrees warmer or something you know it's like it's seriously just warmed up and and that's and it was a lot colder than it normally is for February I mean, we, we get quite mild winters now as you know but the last year was actually colder than anything I ever remember, like even back in the seventies. And then suddenly today it's just like whoosh, temperatures back up, and everybody spots that these days. It's it's kind of obvious, you know. You get these, you get summers now where you just get suddenly you get a blast of cold, and you get snow, and it's like you got snow in the hills, and it's like what? And then the next day it's cleared and it's warm again. So we, I think these these sort of weather patterns are getting more obvious now. It's like people. Are starting to see all the things that all the climate people were predicting years ago, all the models were showing us. So it was there, and it's it's in the the awareness. Uh, honestly, I, I just think people are really. I think we've gone from being a little bit blasé and unaware to being almost hyper aware, and just like there's way too much happening now. So, so I don't know how to read the moods really. All I would say is I think people are just slowly getting there. And there's a sort of awareness, all the stuff that I was talking about in climate groups, the support groups. It's all happening. So it's all starting to come around, I think, to people. They're starting to see it. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's a confusing time to be in because it's it's like I've been waiting for this for years. Like, literally, I've, I've been waiting for people to catch up. And now that they are, it's sort of strange. It's like I don't know how I feel about it almost because I don't know where we're going to go with it. And also with virus too, I think the virus and, and lockdown has really, really made people go, oh, wait a minute, maybe continuity is not, the, you know, maybe business as usual is just not going to keep happening. You know, maybe we're going to drop out of this and perhaps the economy is going to collapse. And really, I, I don't think people are, are quite as confident anymore as they were maybe even two years ago. That everything's going to continue. So, so, yeah, it's a big change and it's... It's hard. I find it very hard actually to read the mood now. Uh, compared to maybe two, three years ago, I, I would have said, "Yeah, I can read the mood. I can tell you this." That now I'm just not so sure. I'm not not really sure. I know. You know, Andrew, I was thinking about you know how how we're defining what human is these days, and you know the industrial, the machine, the techno tech, technical, the technology. We become this uh, human, technical human. We become this uh, machine age. Uh, I, we we know 
that's kind of like talking about the Stone Age when we say machine. But, you know, essentially that's what this society, civilization has made humans into machines and technical machines. And we react by logarithms, algorithms. And, and now we're making decisions through machines, through computers, it seems. And what happens to the organic human being? You see that where I'm going with it, the organic human being, because now it just seems that we're, our emotions, our feelings aren't really paid attention to, and people want to hope, but they're, maybe they're hoping that the savior technology is going to get us out of the jam that we've created. And, and I think that's when you see that it's only a cul-de-sac and, and there, there will be no extension of anything human. But this is another way to think is that there, there have been, we've been through this before. And that doesn't say hope. That means that persevering in the human being of who we are, as you, you were sensing it there, is I think that's more or less acceptable in, in the long run, in, in the annals of time, is that we will continue because if we pay attention to the earth, is the fact that if we don't know earth, we won't survive. But those who know earth will 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 survive. And I don't like the word survive because that's the language we're speaking now. It's it's like uh, we, we we're not able to think anymore because machines are doing that for us. Computers are doing that for us. And we say that it's only extension with us uh, of the human being. But that's only that's only uh, one person's thought that has ballooned into a molehill in, into a mountain. And I think that that's what I'm saying about the anthropocentric weight that we put on our shoulders and because we're no longer paying attention to the answers that and solutions that Earth pr is providing. And I think I'm sensing all of this in you is, yeah. Yes, very much so. Um, and again, because I don't come from a culture that I could really see in any honesty is indigenous now. Um, it's a minority culture, I suppose, if I've said I was Scottish as opposed to British, but, um, you know, or Celtic or something like that. And there's probably a lot to, to tap there, but I wouldn't say we're indigenous. So we're caught up in the kind of machine mindset too and, and technology. Uh, one thing that's going to solve, quite apart from the virus, I think the other thing that will solve the technology problem is probably going to be the aforementioned peak oil issue. I just I don't think we have enough energy left to, to keep on reiterating that paradigm. Um, and lockdown has probably affected business to a degree that I mean, one good thing, actually, just to go back to the sort of technicalities of some of this stuff, is the lockdowns actually push something I was I was arguing about for years, that we need to stop commuting to offices. Um, and actually, that in itself, quite apart from the savings of, you know, the, it'll cut off, cut down pollution, it might actually cut us off from the, the algorithmic mentality as well. You know, we're going to have to rethink, even if we want to. I mean, we're on Zoom here, we're using technology, you know, we're we're all still connected in that way, but we're having to rethink and reorganize our networks. You know, and the way we socially network is going to change. You know, and at one point it seemed to me we were just we we're just going to be taken in whatever direction the big social media companies wanted to take us in. Um, but now this virus, in a sense, the earth has sent us something that has forced us to make a break, you know, with just about everything. That's with business, the way we organize ourselves. Uh, socially in networks, the way we work, the way we trade, and the way we look at the earth, 
like everything now is up for grabs. Now, whether we're going to grab and seriously think about it, I don't know. And that's that's the big, to me, it's a big question mark over where we are now because it's like, are we going to look at this as an opportunity or are we going to continue? My fear is we will continue to, to act out of fear and that we won't look at this as a possible it's kind of like a break and it's an opportunity, but I don't know to do what. That's, that's the problem I have. I'm not sure how to articulate what it is. Mm-hmm. I think it's a kind of not knowing as opposed to knowing. And our culture is completely addicted to knowing, you know, and to having a plan and to having a, a way out, basically. To me, it's like that's exactly the opposite of what we need to do now. We need to stop and say, actually, we don't know what we're doing. We've been going in the wrong direction and we need to think about what, what direction should we go in. But maybe we need to admit we don't know. Humility that I don't think we, we've quite evolved to yet. But again, I see here in the West, by which I mean modern culture. So I'm, I'm not really like chasing after experts and PhDs and all that ilk. What I'd like to do is talk to you from your experience and in, in dealing with, you know, what you feel in your heart is 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 good. But what we're doing is is not so good. You see, and I think that's a balance. And as we know, there's this, if we continue this, this continued economic uh, repression against the earth and, and then depend upon her for the same, for the same support, you know, it's, it's like, this is a yeah. collapsing way. Um, so this extinction process, which is uh, underway, but yet to blame it on the government for their failure means that we're not really you know, taking responsibility as individuals, yet alone as people of a certain country or maybe mass producers of one one item or such as, you know, uranium and things. You know, it goes across the world, of course. This is a reminder that people are thinking across the planet. You are in Scotland, and I've interviewed people on every continent, and that we must take care of the earth. So in a closing statement, Andrew, what would, would you have the listeners, what would you want them to hear? It's, it's hard to say that any one generic thing. I mean, one, one thing I've been doing, uh, I, was, I was looking at your, well, just trying to remember something of what I remembered about uh, your own journey and, and comparing it to my own, because I know you worked in IT and I know you've been a musician. And to some extent, I guess, either because you've, Maybe you're like this yourself, or just listening to lots of people. You've probably geeked out on a lot of detail and on science as well. And I've I've kind of walked through that process, and I really, really did geek out on the whole climate thing. You know, I gained a lot of knowledge on it, and it went in my head, and some of it's gone there. But um, I realised that wasn't the way. You know, the piecemeal way of looking at things wasn't going to do it. It wasn't cutting it. It gives you, it tells you what's wrong, and um, but it doesn't really tell you what to do about it. So. Personally, you know, what I've been doing is going for long walks. Like I'm back in a place now, it's, it's um, got really easy access to the, the, the great outdoors. And I've really been like doing things that are kind of a bit whack <laughs> from yeah. a Western perspective, like talking to trees and listening to the wind and, and doing things that are really a bit old fashioned and probably out of style now, you know, for our culture. But I, I can highly recommend it. I really can. I can recommend going out and just uh, regaining that wisdom that you, we all used to have, that our ancestors had, uh, and we have to relearn this. What else are we going to do? Wow. I suppose we could uh, rely on technology a bit more, but I think we've kind of got the technology we need now. 
there's nothing wrong. I, I don't bash technology. I'm, I'm quite happy with it. But I think we've got what we need. I don't think we need much more. And I certainly don't think those of us in the first world, which is probably the term I should use rather than the West, in the first world, developed world, I don't think we need more stuff. I think we need to get smart with the stuff we've got. Yeah. Appreciate what we've got and and start and see what it is we need to do with it. Because it's like we've got all this bits and pieces of what seems to be a jigsaw in front of us. And we've lost the knack of putting it together or reassembling it to something new. So I would suggest to people that's like getting back into that place that we used to call the heart. Get back into your heart and then your mind will follow it. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Okay. Yes. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's really an honor to talk to you all across the waves here in Turtle Island to Scotland and the, your people and that that boastful land, I'd like to call it. I've never been to Scotland, <laughs> but I've heard so much about it. And I had, I was only a few miles away from there a couple of years ago, but one day I'll come, maybe we'll have a visit and sit down and have some tea or coffee. It's good to talk to you, Andrew, finally. And uh, thanks for coming on in this late hour over there and, and be be good, be well, be good to yourself. Thank you very much. It's an honor to talk to you as well. And that was Andrew Beck, who is an author, a musician living in Scotland and uh, trying to make sense of the age we live in, in particular, ecological and a climate crisis that we are going through to understand how it's all related. And that's a human thing. So thank you for joining us here on First Voices Radio. My name is Teokasin Ghost Horse. Dance alive.